Hello and welcome to Off the Books, where we surf the uncharted waters of accounting, finance, risk, and wherever else the waves take us. This episode is brought to you by Workiva, the one platform that brings financial reporting, ESG, audit, and risk teams together like a five-way tie for first place in the Big 12. My name is Steve Soder, accounting enthusiast and Diet Coke aficionado. Looking forward to debiting a great conversation and I'm so happy to have you with us. And I am also so happy to have Catherine Sai joining us. Catherine, can you introduce yourself? Yeah, I'm not an accountant or Diet Coke aficionado, but I like asking questions of smart people. So I'm here to ask questions of you and especially our special guest today. No kidding. So we have Nick Mazing joining us back again. Nick, you have been on the podcast multiple times. I'm wondering if you could tell us about that, as well as remind our audience about your role and the company you work for. Oh, well, thanks for coming back. I, I heard that you're rolling out a guest loyalty program. So once I get my 10th appearance, I'll get that plastic work even water bottle I've always dreamed of having. Sorry, so, Nick, that's 20 episodes. <laughs> oh, well, already starting the call with a loss. Well, let's go. Uh, more seriously, I really enjoy uh, chatting with you every once in a while. I think you have one of the most informative podcasts in the corporate finance space. And if you haven't heard me here before, I'm the director of research at AlphaSense. We're a, a powered market intelligence platform. And we bring in one place corporate documents like filings, transcripts, press releases, regulatory content from the SEC, FASB, and so on. Uh, Wall Street research documents for the big four, expert interview transcripts, and so on. So uh, specific to SEC reporting teams were the go-to place for searching across peers, uh, looking at in-depth accounting interpretations, and so on. And uh, we uh, had a great year. Uh, we just announced our Series E. Google invested in us in April in our Series D extension. We're rolling out Gen AI products, three already this year, so certainly an exciting time for us. Humble brag. <laughs> I know it's been a while since we chatted. Um, we wanted to check in with you and ask you about what sorts of trends you're seeing in Q3. What would you say were the top three? So this earnings season, there are really three things that stood out. Number one, generative AI. Number two, the diet drugs. And number three, the situation with the interest rates. So taking those in order, starting with generative AI, there is an absolute explosion on conference calls. And last year in the final quarter, uh, the calendar Q4 of last year, there was only 13 transcripts that mention generative AI. In the last full quarter, which would be the calendar Q3 of this year, there was 877 of those. In other words, it was a 70-fold increase in transcripts that mentioned generative AI. So it's certainly one of the biggest uh, waves in technology ever. And you're seeing that in the market as well. Uh, there is the Magnificent 7, <laughs> which is the kind of the... Uh, currently perceived as AI winners where the stocks are doing very well and without them actually the stock index um, year to date is not is not doing as well. Uh, the second topic is the new diet drugs. By now everyone has heard of Ozempic and Wegovy, but they're more in the pipeline. Uh, so first order effects are very obvious. So if you look at uh, Novo, you look at Eli Lilly, big pharma companies, uh, they have benefited from these. So these are the haves. You also have a lot of scrutiny of the have-nots. So there was a Wall Street Journal uh, article last week where they looked at another large pharmaceutical company. It's like, oh, you know, investors are wondering why they, they don't have a diet pipeline, right? Um, so the second-order effects are more interesting. So we're seeing weakness in medical devices, so things like glucose monitoring, because uh, the expectations are there will be less demand for things like glucose monitoring. 
Um, there is also an expectation that bariatric surgeries will go down because these drugs are so effective. On the flip side, there is an expectation that you may see more cosmetic surgeries, things like skin tightening and so on. Most interesting to me, there was a downgrade recently where a, a Wall Street analyst downgraded a coffee and donut chain specifically because of the diet drugs, which is very, very interesting. And also Wall Street is running a lot of reports with surveys of people on those drugs and what kind of foods they're cutting back on. So, Steve, is it material if uh, Wall Street cares about it? Because I know that after that, Coke and Crocs, materiality is one of your go-to topics. <laughs> it is one of my go-to topics. And I actually found that so interesting when I read about that downgrade because I've got to believe that this is something that that specific company is paying a lot of attention to. I would imagine that large food manufacturers uh, are also paying a lot of attention to it. And what's so interesting is that you could actually have a downgrade, which I would say is absolutely material to investors because, I mean, that's going to directly impact the stock price. Yet, meanwhile, inside those very companies, I wouldn't be surprised if there's a real lack of data and support for uh, decreasing revenues or, or, or other things in support of that downgrade. And that becomes a really interesting disclosure question. You have downgrades that that are public and will cause, uh, you know, again, some impact to stock price, yet there may not be any large amount of evidence or data internally to support any kind of a disclosure. And so now, from an SEC reporting perspective, it probably would make sense to talk about it. But I'm thinking specifically about risk factors, let's just say, like, hey, we're not noticing anything changing uh, in our results of operations uh, in response to these things, but it might. It is being talked about. And that, to me, is the difference between something, again, that may go in a risk factor as opposed to something that may actually end up, you know, in your MDNA. I would say that this isn't that different from broader ESG issues where investors might be talking about it, but there may be a lack of data inside the company to start to make those connections. I think that puts financial reporting and, for that matter, ESG and sustainability teams uh, in a pretty difficult position when you're trying to figure out, okay, how do we talk about this publicly? Mm -hmm. And, and I, I did look uh, at company companies outside of the healthcare sector in their risk factors, whether they've been meshing diet drugs, and the answer is no. So uh, excluding healthcare, which obviously the, the number of companies discuss them, when you look at 10Q risk factors or 10K risk factors, depending on the year, I did not see anything that is mentioned there related to that. Oh, I think that will change. Uh, so for example, generative AI, the other topic is now all over risk factors in many different contexts, including one technology company is uh, discussing that companies being slow to adopt generative AI may hurt them. And then we have all kinds of other risk factors, you know, copyright infringements and, you know, general business displacements and, and so on, which I think I think is very interesting. But it, the that drugs are not in the food companies uh, thank, uh, uh, thank you risk factors yet. But when you look at stock prices and things like that, uh, there is a number of 52-week lows in, in the last few weeks, and people think that they're being affected by that. At and, and I mean, not to interrupt you, but that's super interesting to me, Nick, because that feels like a bit of a miss. That's what risk factors are for, actually, is to think about kind of the what ifs. I mean, you don't want to like throw everything in there. The SEC has tried to sh shrink the amount of risk factors and make way to 10Ks. But that feels to me like a perfect opportunity to say, hey, we're paying attention to it. It hasn't impacted our results, which is why we're not talking about it elsewhere. But it's something that's on our radar, which is why we put it in a risk factor. I don't know. Maybe you put it in a risk factor and it legitimizes it, and they don't even want to do that. I don't know. Yeah, and, and analysts are asking about it on calls as well, right? So it is a little bit of, I think, we're still in the uncertainty zone on that. And then uh, uh, the third topic that 
is uh, certainly very big, and not just during this earnings season, is interest rates. And, you know, if you're new to the game, we had abnormally low interest rates for more than 10 years. And now we have seen a very rapid increase in interest rates. So not only did they get high relative to recent history, but also went up very quickly. And these fast moves tend to break things. So you look at the bond market crisis in 1994. You look at the dot-com bubble in 2000. You look at the great financial crisis with the real estate bubble 2007. They all had rate hikes, right? So uh, we're already seeing the housing market freezing because of that specifically existing home sales. Everybody who has a mortgage, 3% is not moving, right? And when you look at the numbers, it's it's completely frozen, right? The number of, of, of sales there. But when you look at the transcript trends from the earnings calls, we're also seeing companies discussing things like maturity walls. We're seeing things like interest income is back as a topic since companies are earning uh, more money on their cash balances. There was a, a, there was a food company that they had to refinance their 5% bonds that they had issued in 2018 recently, they refinanced those bonds at 8% and had to issue some equity. So their earnings per share gets a double whammy from number one, higher interest expense from five to eight, and there was more shares outstanding, right? So this is a direct effect of the higher interest rates hurting earnings per share. The last thing that, that you know, I would say there was a chart recently, it was either a Goldman report or a Bank of America report that looked at upcoming maturities for S&P 500 bonds and Russell 2000, which is the small caps. The S&P 500 maturities are extremely well spread out up to and including like to 2050, right? They use the period of low rates to term out their debt. On the other hand, when you look at the smaller companies, the vast majority of the maturities are in the next, call it five years, six years or so. And the market, I think, is worried about it when you look at the large caps are doing much better, at least this year, last year, versus the smaller caps in the United States. And I really think this is rates. So we're seeing a lot of focus on what's going on with rates and upcoming maturities and so on. Well, let's hope you're not foreshadowing a uh, credit crisis five years from now. Once I hit my late 30s, I knew I had a serious decision to make. I could either get weirdly into World War II history, learn an absurd amount about wine, or start collecting vinyl records. Since I was never one for memorizing facts, and I think wine is best paired with, well, more wine, I started collecting albums. And yes, dear listener, the feel of a tactile piece of music is great in your hands. And yes, the sound really is warmer with all the pops and crackles underneath as Fiona Apple or Tom Petty warble through my apartment. But record collecting is complicated. First, there's choosing a categorization method. Do you go straight alphabetical or split by genre or year? And what if people you live with don't care about any system and like a monster they put Orville Peck's Pony right next to a trap called Quest's low-end theory? Then there's tracking album prices. They can fluctuate more than the stock market. You have to know where and when to buy that Carly Rae Jepsen. You've been coveting. I wish there was a Rekiva for vinyl. A unified platform to put all that vital financial reporting, ESG, and audit and risk info in one spot. And know what the most up-to-date facts and figures are. Dashboards to help you understand where your albums are by genre and year, and linked numbers and narrative to track a musician's career as they hop through various bands. Wouldn't that be great? Doesn't that sound lovely? Uh, Nick, I did want to ask, since the SEC adopted a final rule on cybersecurity disclosures, I just want to ask if any companies have started making any disclosures about cybersecurity incidents yet. 
I do have an alert set up for that 8K item 1.05, which is the specific type of 8K for cybersecurity incidents. I have not seen one coming yet, uh, but the, you know, back to materiality, if you adopt the framework from a few years ago, it was a, a VC that wrote software is eating the world. In other words, software is becoming more and more important. Uh, breaches become more material, right? And we, in just in the last few weeks, we saw very serious operational disruptions with a consumer packaged goods company and I believe two Las Vegas operators of casinos. There were, these were ransomware situations. On the uh, regulatory side, you're seeing much heightened focus by the SEC on cybersecurities. So, for example, there was a, a data breach and some employees sold stock ahead of that. They were charged with insider trading for avoiding losses. More recently, I should say very recently, there was a, uh, another technology company that was charged alongside with their chief information security officer for fraud and material weakness related to a data breach that ended up being a kind of a geopolitical sort of situation because I believe they were used by certain government agencies. So the it makes sense to have special and prompt disclosures just because the kind of the importance of technology overall is much greater. And, you know, because the disclosure itself is uh, very quickly becoming mandated vis-a-vis -vis this, this, this SEC rule, you could even have all of the right uh, controls inside of your company, but for lack of disclosure, you end up getting hit with a control failure because that itself was one of the things that, that then needs to happen. And when I read that case about that, that CIO being charged personally, that should be a really, really big wake-up call. I mean, there's, as you said, all kinds of other geopolitical considerations there, but that should definitely be a shot across the bow for uh, CISOs and CIOs and others who I think now have a very personal stake potentially um, in getting this right in, you know, the unfortunate uh, uh, event of a, uh, of a cyber breach. Um, so one interesting thing, Nick, we're getting really close to Black Friday. Um, in a previous uh, Q3 earnings recap, you actually were able to share some Black Friday deals uh, that you uh, learned through your software. Uh, we're just curious as we're all thinking about uh, the holidays. Anything to share on Black Friday at this point? Well, uh, can we talk about the pumpkin spice season instead? <laughs> what do you think? Sure. I, 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 have, I have very important information about Full disclosure, spice. I'm not a huge fan of pumpkin spice, but this will make for great spicy podcast conversations. So yes, please. So, number one, it's not your imagination. I did look back, and pumpkin spice season used to start in, you know, October a few years ago. This year, 7-Eleven went out August 1st with their press release, and then uh, Krispy Kreme was second. Last year, Krispy Kreme was first during the first week of August. Uh, I track all the pumpkin spice products that are released, so some notable things was a, a pumpkin spice cream was from Chubani, it was the Hagen Daz pumpkin spice ice cream. Wendy's Frosties pumpkin spice as well. In case you don't know, the Frosties these are uh, soft serve ice cream based beverages at Wendy's. On the crazier side, uh, we had uh, pumpkin spice caviar, which is uh, made from avocado oil. These were these little pearls that were made into pumpkin spice with uh, like a real caviar jar. Uh, we uh, Hormel released 
pumpkin spice ham. A little bit disappointed because if you remember a few years ago, they had the pumpkin spice spam that was sold exclusively on Walmart.com and sold out in 20 minutes. So Have that, you tried either one? Of, uh, no, I couldn't. Uh, but it was a little bit of a letdown not to have the spam this year. And you also had uh, hefty trash bags uh, that are some are mint flavored and so on. They actually had pumpkin spice garbage bags. No, 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 no. Doesn't seem what, real. What planet am I on? Like, what is happening with the pumpkin spice? You know, that leads us to a, a pretty good closing question for today then. Nick, is there something that you think needs to be in a pumpkin spice edition? Mm, absolutely. I think when you look at the pumpkin spice economy, it's very, you know, female dominated. So I think there's an opportunity in men's and uh, maybe Old Spice pumpkin spice uh, antiperspirant, and you know, with with my girl Britney Spears being back at the new in the news with the biography after the conservatorship, there's all demand for kind of nostalgic pop. So maybe they can bring back the Spice Girls to promote them. So imagine this is Porsche Spice for pumpkin spice, old spice, very catchy, right? So if you're a product manager at Procter and Gamble, this idea is available to you, royalty free. So very, very well played, expertly done, Mr. Amazing. Oh my goodness. Steve, I'm curious what your answer is. None of it. Absolutely none of it. Nothing needs pumpkins. But you know what? I will tell you this. My wife makes delicious pumpkin bars with cream cheese frosting. That's kind of a fall winter thing. Nick, I think you've told us previously that you try to watch your sugar. So uh, there's a lot of sugar in these things. You may want to avoid them. To me, Catherine, that's it. That's it. That's it. Full stop. A pumpkin pie, but I don't consider that to be a pumpkin spice thing. That's like a legit thing. So as far as I'm concerned, none of it. But how about you, Catherine? I am really going to make a push for a pumpkin spice edition of Off the Books. <laughs> Do you think we can make it happen? I don't know. I, I, I'm not sure what reaction our producer Mike is having as he's listening to this conversation, but uh, Mike, we should add that to our uh, to our next staff. Well, at, at, at the next Amplify, you can hand out cards with the QR code for the podcast and a scratch and sniff pumpkin spice. So that's, that's, your, that's your business card for the next um, Amplify conference. Full of ideas. Well, Nick Mazing from Alpha Sense, it is so good to have you. Thank you so much for bringing uh, for bringing the research and bringing the spice, uh, such as it was. It's always great to have you. My pleasure. And thank you, dear listener, for surfing along with us. I'm Catherine Sai. You heard Steve Soder, and this has been Off the Books, presented by Workiva. Please follow us wherever you listen to your podcasts. Leave a review. Tell your buddies if you liked the show. If you're watching this on YouTube, drop us a note in the comments or feel free to drop us a line at offthebooks at workiva.com. Surf's up and we'll see you on the next wave.